of a battle going on for the, the, the story that's told in Genesis chapter 2. Our culture in the day we live, there is a battle over marriage. And so we're going to the beginning of the story, we're going to the beginning of the book to see what God has said, to set the record straight, and see what the Lord has for us here about marriage. So let's begin, we're going to begin in Genesis chapter 2 verse 4, and we're going to read till the end of the chapter. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant in the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where gold is. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. And the name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flowed east, flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took, out, he took one of his ribs and closed up its plates with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man's, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Let's pray. Lord God, as we read this amazing and grand text, we pray that you would help us to properly esteem and properly understand this thing called marriage, what it means to be a husband and a wife, and and how this institution serves for your glory and for our good. Lord God, we just pray that if you would correct our thinking where it needs to be corrected, that you would encourage us where we need encouragement, and that we would behold this good and beautiful thing that you have given to us. In Jesus' name, amen. As I said before, no... 
No less, I'd say, than the challenge on creation, the age of the earth, and all of that, is the modern attack on marriage. We're well aware of the, the current debate over the issue of gay marriage, but the attack on marriage is much deeper, much broader than that. That is only one facet of the attack, as we will see. And so this morning, in the short time that we have, I want to just look at three points. We're going to look at the absolute priority of marriage, which is to say, why is this worth talking about? Why is it so important? How big of a deal is marriage? I'm going to argue it's a big deal. Second, the actual purpose of marriage. What is marriage for? There's a lot of confusion on that point. And of course, if we're trying to understand something, we need to know what its purpose it serves. And, and thirdly, the authentic pattern of marriage. Okay, what then is marriage? What makes a marriage? So we're going to look at the, in those three points. First, the absolute priority of marriage. And the first point here we need to recognize, if we're going to understand marriage rightly, is its divine author. Its divine author. This is crucial, and it's unmistakable here. Adam does not come up with the idea, hey, I'm going to go and find a wife. Rather, we see in this story in Genesis 2 the sovereign hand of God supervising every step. God showing Adam first that he needs a companion. He does not have one. And we get that great statement, there was not found for the man any suitable companion. And then God putting the man to sleep. And then God forming the woman. And then God bringing the woman to the man. At every step, this is clearly God's doing. God's plan. He is the author of marriage. And, as you all know, we've gone over this repeatedly, authorship creates authority. Those words are linked because we understand that if you've made something, it is yours to define. The potter gets to decide what the clay is going to be used for, what he will fashion it into. If marriage is God's creation, God's institution, then God has the right to define it. You see how crucial this is, and you also see how frequently futile it can be discussing marriage in the wider culture because so many people assume marriage is man's creation. It's something we came up with. It's something ancient societies came up with. Well, if that's the case, then we get to define it, and we get to reshape it, and we get to remold it. So we've got to start by understanding this is God's. It's, God, it's, not, it's not something we came up with. God is its author. Interestingly, when Jesus is questioned about divorce, he does not refute divorce. He does not speak against divorce as covenant-breaking. It is covenant-breaking. We'll see that. He zooms in at God's authority in marriage. Listen to his response in Matthew 19.6. As the Pharisees came to him, they are no longer two flesh but one. What therefore God has joined together. Let not man separate. Jesus' rejection of divorce is based upon God's creation and involvement in marriage. He recognizes it as divinely instituted and overseen. And on that basis, how dare we treat it lightly? You see, it's divine author. This is God's institution. He's given it to us. He's given it to all, all nations and all peoples. Theologians talk about marriage as a creation ordinance. This is why I'd be willing to go to the wedding of non-Christians, because God's given it to all peoples. Every culture has some semblance, some understanding. Some can twist and, and pervert and change it, but it exists wherever men and women are. There's something that looks awfully close to marriage there. 
It's almost as if it's hardwired into us. It's divine author. But not only is marriage given to us by the living God, which gives it a priority and it gives it an importance, I want you to notice the, the priority of its place in the Scripture. Its priority of place in the Scripture. We get Genesis 1, the creation of all things, ex nihilo, from nothing, and then we get marriage. That's, that's pretty important. And I want you to stop and think, Jesus' first miracle was done at a wedding. And how does the book of Revelation close in chapter 19, verse 9? The angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Bible starts with a wedding or marriage, ends with a marriage. In fact, you could sum up all of redemptive history as this, God the Father sending his son to redeem and receive his bride. That's, that's, that'd be a pretty valid way to sum up all of redemptive history. But a father sending his son to, to receive and redeem his bride. And so marriage is, is, plays a big role in the story of the Bible. It's right there at the beginning. It's right there at the end. And through and through, there it is. The Bible is a big fan of, has a lot to say about marriage. This is no small thread. So if you're asking, why make a big deal? Why pick a fight? Why stir the pot? This is a big deal. It's a big deal because God instituted it. We didn't come up with it, and it's a big deal because of the priority of its place in the Bible itself. Okay, so that's the priority of marriage. That's why it's worth talking about. Second, what is the purpose of marriage? And here is where, in the culture, I think we've got all sorts of ideas. But probably the most common notion in our culture is that marriage is this thing that sort of completes me, it fulfills me, it brings me joy, it makes me, it makes me happy. Almost all the, the, the feedback I get when I talk to people in the culture about marriage and what its purpose is are all self-focused. In other words, our culture views marriage as something that exists if you want to partake of it. It's optional entirely, our culture says. But if you want to do it, it's there to serve you. And they evaluate marriage and the success of marriage on what it's doing for you. Is it meeting your needs? Is it making you feel fulfilled? Is it bringing you happiness? Well, I think biblically we can at least mark out four purposes for marriage. You might be able to argue there's a fifth. But four here that I want to look at. And they aren't really self-focused. Not at all. Now, there's three texts this morning we're going to look at. We're going to look at the Genesis 2, so keep your, your thumb there. But the other... T- Our second text we're to look at is in Ephesians, and so keep your thumb in in Genesis. Let's go over to Ephesians 5, and we'll come back to Ephesians 5 a little later, so you may want to make a mark there. But first and foremost, as you're turning there, marriage exists, according to the Apostle Paul, and this is a mystery, he says, to model the gospel. Marriage exists to model the gospel. He gives instructions to wives and to husbands. We'll pick it up in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. So right off the bat, a husband is to model his love on the demonstration of love that Christ had for his bride, the church. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, 
having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Do you get that? He just quoted Genesis 2. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined with his wife. And then he says, this mystery is profound, which is to say, you're not going to get this from reading Genesis 2 alone. He was given this revelation by the Spirit. A mystery refers to something previously hidden, now brought to light. But as God's authoritative spokesperson, the Apostle Paul tells us, this mystery is profound, and I am saying it refers to Christ and the church. So what I get from that is this. First and foremost, why does marriage exist? Before it exists for any function for you and for me, for any good that it brings you and I, it exists to be a visible model of the gospel a visible model as, as husbands are serving and loving their wives, as they are dying to self, as they're getting down on their knees and bringing out the water of the word and washing them. The world watching is supposed to see something that is true about the way Christ loves his church. You're starting to see how sacred marriage is and how difficult it is then to recast it and reshape it. If this is, Paul is saying, that text in Genesis, it's, it's means, it's, it's speaking to Christ and the church. It's veiled back in Genesis 2. This side of the cross, Paul tells us, that's what this is for, first and foremost. It's not the only reason marriage exists. It is its highest reason. And it's one of the reasons we have to treat it as a sacred thing. Because as we warp and twist marriage, we will warp and twist the picture of Jesus Christ and his church. That means every husband who's not loving their wife rightly is, is warping the image of Christ. Every wife who's not falling in line and, and honoring and submitting to her husband is, is, is twisting that picture. But when it's done right, it is a beautiful picture and it brings much glory to God to model the gospel. Second, now we're back in, in Genesis 2, to serve and glorify God. Now here I want to zoom in on that remarkable statement in verse 18. The Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. And if you've been reading through Genesis starting in chapter 1 as we did two weeks ago, you, you read the first day, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good, and it was very good. And now, for the first time in the book, something is not good. And this should cause the attentive reader to perk up and, whoa, whoa, what's going on here? It's not good. It's not good. The man is alone. Now, and here's, the, here's the thing I want you to think about. So often when we read this, because we have a man-centered view of the story, what we think of is poor Adam. It's not good for Adam. Adam must be lonely. Adam must be feeling insecure. It's, that, that's, not, that's not, I think, biblically how we should understand this. What is God first and foremost concerned about? What is God's highest goal? His own glory. Now, we know that his own glory comes it's not in conflict with the good of his people, his, his creation. But we've already got hints of it in this text. The man was taken to the garden to work it. 
God blessed the man and the woman in chapter 1, telling them to be fruitful and multiply. There's work that God has for Adam to do. There's glory that God has that he wants to receive from Adam that Adam will not be able to give to God alone. That is why it's not good. We get that also from the description of the woman as a help meet. There's something incomplete in Adam. And yes, it's incomplete in his experience. He will feel alone. But primarily, it's incomplete as a servant of the living God. Marriage here is seen, secondly, to serve and glorify God. For every one of you who is married, the day you got married, the day I got married, I was admitting, I am not able to be a faithful servant of the Lord Jesus Christ as I ought without this woman. I need her help to be, to be faithful. I need her help to, to glorify God the way I should. That, that's what I'm admitting. That one of the things I'm admitting at, on my wedding day. Adam needs a helpmeet. He is not sufficiently equipped for the task of serving and glorifying God. And again, this, this gets the focus off of self. You know, I remember I, I was in school, and I was at a summer class for biblical counseling, and, and I remember one, one anecdote that I was told by Dr. Wayne Mack that really recast my thinking about marriage. This was a summer before I met Serena and we got engaged, and God was working on me and convicting me that I was not rightly um, valuing marriage. I was, I'd assumed the culture's mentality. I am going to school. I am going to seminary, and maybe at some point I might get married. That was sort of my approach. And through some teaching from Al Mohler and, and this one incident, it really recast and reshaped my thinking. I had been viewing marriage as this is for me, and if you start viewing marriage as primarily for me, you get this notion, well, you get, as a Christian, I know you're only supposed to get married once, and so you get one bite at the apple, and you don't want to mess up, and this might be a pretty good option, but what if there's another better option waiting around the corner, and you're like, oh, you know, drat, I could have had a better wife, and that type of thinking is, I hope, so self-evidently corrupt and selfish. But that was how I was thinking. And then I remember this story, and Dr. Mack, who's, who's an older gentleman, he's a bit of a curmudgeon, um, he can sort of get away with this. He was talking about counseling with a married man who he'd been meeting with for a while, and he was coming in, and, and week after week, and he was just discouraged, and, and what he was saying was basically that his wife wasn't meeting his needs, his wife wasn't meeting his expectations, this isn't what he expected going to marriage, she wasn't cooking meals, she wasn't happy to see him when he came home, and he had this long list of all these things he needed, all these things he wanted that he wasn't receiving. And it's not to say that that isn't real suffering. It's not to say that there aren't legitimate expectations in marriage. But here's, here's the response from Dr. Mack that, at least in my thinking, just challenged me and really was a paradigm shift. He said, I forget the guy's name. Let's say it's Bob. He said, Bob, let me ask you a question. When you entered into a covenant before God with this woman in the presence of many witnesses, can you tell me, please, what it was you swore to receive? What, what promise... What did you promise to, to receive? You see the point of that? Because our, our, our vows, for the most part, still have it right. If you go look at vows, what is the man doing? He's promising to give. He's promising to serve. He's promising to, to be faithful. He's promising to do. There's, I don't believe any of us here in our wedding vows promise to receive things. And, and what that did in my mind was it made me understand that what God wanted me to do is find a woman that I was content, that I was willing to make these promises to 
so that I could serve God. God wanted me to serve him by finding someone to serve. He wanted me to image the gospel of Jesus Christ by finding a woman to wash with the word. He wanted me to, to glorify him by, by caring for, as Christ cares for his church, a woman. And it's, it shifted in my mind, marriage is this thing for me as I need to go find someone that's biblically lawful, you know, and, and advisable to make these promises and serve. Because marriage exists secondly, so that I can serve and glorify God better. That's a radical paradigm shift. It was for me. But it also made, freed me from this notion of the one, 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 one. You know what I mean, right? We get trapped, we get trapped by this notion of, are they the one, 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 one? You can read your Bible. When you get married, they're the one. That, that's, that's what I'll tell you. When you get married, they're the one. And I don't want to downplay the notion of love and romance, but nowhere in my Bible do I see this responsibility. You better make sure you don't mess up. You better make sure they're the one. Rather, it's like, you better make sure they love Jesus, and you better make sure they're godly, and you better make sure they're not somebody else's husband or wife, and you better make sure they're not a close relative. But the Bible is remarkably free from all of those, but you share the same interests. You both like to go on walks. there's a ton of freedom. God says, look, you need to focus on being the right person, not finding the right person. Thirdly, marriage exists to end aloneness. Marriage exists to end aloneness. And now we do come to some of the benefits, the direct benefits that that marriage does bring to to the man and the woman. I don't want to say they're not there, but I want to put them further down the chain of priority. First, marriage models the gospel. Second, marriage enables the man and the woman to better serve, to better glorify God. Third, it ends aloneness. Now, turn over to Malachi chapter 2. It's the other, the third passage we'll look at. We'll be looking mostly at Genesis 2 and then some of Ephesians 5 and some of Malachi 2. And this language in Malachi 2 as God is, is angry at Israel for their the men are, are divorcing their wives, but in the rebuke that he gives, we, we see some of the, the beauty of marriage. Some great, some great phrases here. Malachi chapter 2, starting in um, verse 14. And, well, we've got to start in verse 13, otherwise we're in the middle of a paragraph. Okay, this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offerings or accepts it with favor from your hand. So they're sad because God's not receiving their offerings. And you say, why does he not? Answer, because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. She's your companion. She's the wife of your youth. She brought to an end your aloneness, and God made us social creatures. He made us, not, we don't thrive in isolation. Adam was alone, and, and this woman that he brought to him, and you can tell Adam's excited. We can go back to Genesis 2. He just speaks up, and Adam said, this at last. It's bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She should be called woman because she was taken out of man. Marriage ends aloneness. And from that, not only does it end aloneness, it becomes this crucible that creates love and passion and, and romance. See, our, our culture, again, I think, has got it backwards. 
we, we look at this fruit. I, I want to argue that, that the, the experience of being in love, the experience of, according to Proverbs 5, being drunk with love. Proverbs 5 encourages husbands, go, go be drunk with love for your wife. That experience is the fruit and not the root of marriage. In other words, it's the product that this tree regularly produces. Now, every single day of my life, I don't wake up drunk with love for my wife. I love my wife. She's my closest friend. She's the companion of my youth. But my, my rapture of existential and experiential love waxes and wanes. There are days where I just, I'll just stare and look at her. And there are other days where I love her, and she's the companion of my youth, but, but we're doing stuff together, and, and I'm not as, you know, drunk with love, if you will. But this, this tree bears that fruit with regularity. There are seasons for it. Our culture's got it backwards. We think the only valid reason to get married is if you are drunk with love. We have the full-fledged fruit of the tree, and we've made it the root of the tree. And then, because that's the reason to get married, if at any point in the future your experience of love drunkness diminishes, then you cast the marriage aside because that's the reason I got married and so I'm not feeling that anymore. Or worse yet, I've met somebody new who I do feel it with, and we just move on. No, marriage is the institution that creates and perpetuates love. I mean, otherwise, how do you make sense of the fact that so many of the weddings in the Old Testament, the bride and groom are meeting each other for the first time. Think of Isaac meeting his wife. Think of Adam, God bringing his wife to him. Which is not to say that it's a bad thing to be in love with the woman you're going to marry. I'm, I'm a fan of that. I think that's good. What I'm saying is our culture has made it the one, the only, and the absolute issue. And I just don't think biblically that that can be supported. I don't think that can be supported. And that's all our culture looks at. And that bleeds into the church. And we get caught up with the whole, are they the one, 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 one? Because of course you know they're the one by how you feel. Which should that's, that's a sermon for another time. Okay, to, end, to model the gospel, to serve and glorify God, to end aloneness. And fourth, and now back to Malachi, to produce godly offspring. To produce godly offspring. Now, that, that's stated clearly in Malachi. I want you to see it. Talking about marriage again. Verse 14, chapter 2. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you've been faithless, Though she is your companion and your wife by covenant, did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? Speaking of God. And what was the one God seeking in their union? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. You see, marriage is the only biblically legitimate expression and place for expression of human sexuality. It's the only place. In every other instance, Paul says flee. In every other instance, other than marriage, we're told to resist, to run from temptation, like Joseph fled from Potiphar's wife. You go to Proverbs 5, though, go to your well and drink deeply. Here's the one place. No, no, you don't have to fight anymore. You don't have to resist anymore. You don't have to run anymore unless you're running to your fountain. This is the one valid place for human sexuality where, where you can be naked and unashamed, to use the language at the end of chapter 2 of Genesis. This is, 
And of course, that, before the advent of, of reliable, dependable, and affordable birth control 50, 60 years ago, generally led to pregnancies and children. And so one of the things God is after in marriage is godly offspring. I want to focus on godly because, again, in a culture that can view marriage as optional, we certainly view children as optional. And I want to focus that, again, that, that, makes, that logic only makes sense if these things exist for me. Marriage exists for how I feel. Children exist for how I feel and how they affect my lifestyle. But what if God desired to be glorified in marriage so it became less optional? And what if God according to Malachi chapter 2, desires godly offspring. He desires the sanctifying process as parents learn how to raise their children. Anyone here who's a parent knows you, the Lord refines and sanctifies you. you. You call out upon the living God more and more. You're forced to rely on him more and more as you try to raise these children. And what if God is interested in that process of maturing and sanctifying men and women through the rearing of children, well, then that would make it a whole lot less optional, wouldn't it? That's what it says. Why did he give them a portion in the union? Because he was seeking godly offspring. So that's the purposes, I'm arguing, of marriage, to model the gospel, to serve and glorify God, to enable us to serve and glorify God, to end aloneness, and to produce godly offspring. There's a lot more that could be said here, but we've got to move on to the authentic pattern of marriage. Now we're going to look at really the points that are coming under attack. Four, four points here. Back in Genesis 2, the second to last verse, we get Moses, almost certainly Moses speaking in verse 24, giving us um, a, a statement, a formula of marriage. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, the reason I say this is Moses and not Adam is Adam had no human father, and Eve had no human mother. It would be awfully weird of him to say this. So I think the best sense to make of this is Moses as the narrator, and Moses as the author of this text then gives us some application. Because of this, a man shall leave his father and mother, shall hold fast, cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh, to which I got the, the snappy leave, cleave, and weave triplet. Leave, cleave, and weave. Leave your mother and father, hold fast to his wife, and become internet, become one flesh with her. So let's look at those three points one at a time. First, leaving. Sing, this, this means then that marriage in leaving, this notion of leaving your father and your mother, is the singular and highest earthly relationship. It's the singular and the highest earthly relationship. It's, it's, every other relationship changes now. You were living in your, in your mother and father's home, you're leaving their home now. You're starting a new home, a new family. That, that's the picture here. It, it trumps those other earthly relationships. When you got married, you promised greater loyalty, greater faithfulness, and greater priority to your spouse than to any other person on earth. This is something oftentimes that can get, get backwards in our culture because I've seen in many cases parents who their greatest loyalty to first and foremost is their children. And actually much conflict between the husband and wife occurs because things are out of whack. Understand this. I love my kids. They need to leave the house one day. 
God intends for my children to leave the house one day. Our relationship is, is as it is, is temporary. God intends my relationship with my wife to be permanent as long as I live, as long as she lives. It's of a greater priority. The singular and highest earthly relationship. When you, when you get married, every other relationship changes. Every other relationship gets knocked down a notch or two on the priority list. Leaving. Second, cleaving. Marriage is a lifelong covenant of faithfulness. Lifelong covenant faithfulness. That word covenant is important. Covenants and contracts are not the same thing. A contract is simply an agreement between two people, and a contract has stipulations for entering and stipulations for exiting. So you get your car rental contract agreement. And there's these conditions, okay, and if you return the car, you know, in a bad condition, you have to pay these fines. That's not the way covenants work. Covenants, and if we go to the example of God making a covenant with Abraham, you make promises, and then God walks between this, the, the burning pot, going between the torn animals, indicating, and if I don't keep my word, may I die. That's a, that's a covenant. Covenants don't have exit clauses, Covenants are promises that, that don't get to be taken back. And I, and I said earlier that marriage is under attack today, and it's been under attack for a long time. You know, the church is, is the world, our, our country is very attentive to the current debate over gay marriage, but can I suggest to you that back in the mid-70s and early 80s, a shift to marriage in our country took place that was as big if not bigger, than the current one we face. And that was the institution, the advent, of no-fault divorce laws. Because when our country adopted no-fault divorce laws, what that meant is our country said marriage is not a covenant, marriage is a contract. Marriage is not a covenant where, where you need to prove that crimes have taken place. Rather, for any reason, you don't need to explain yourself. You want to be done? That's fine, you're done. I want you to get what a radical shift that is from the notion of covenant, where he, needs, he or she needs to have committed the crime that under the Old Testament would have warranted the death penalty. That's how you can end a marriage. To now, yeah, I met somebody new. That's okay. No fault divorce laws. California was the first U.S. state, and that's hardly a surprise, but the person who enacted the legislation, I bet, will surprise you. California was the U.S. state to first adopt what are now called no-fault divorces in the United States in 1969, signed by then-Governor Ronald Reagan, coming into effect on January 1st, 1970. Since at least 1985, no-fault divorces have been available in all 50 U.S. states in the District of Columbia. So in the span of 10 years, our entire country redefined marriage. Now, the frustrating thing is, where was the church out crying against that? Perhaps there are people, places where it was taking place, but I think by and large, we were silent. Just as big, if not bigger, shift in, in defining marriage. It's no longer a covenant, it's a contract. It's no longer, if I break this, may I die till death do us part. Now it's till I feel like it. The earliest precedent in no-fault divorce laws, interestingly enough, was originally enacted in Russia shortly after the Bolshevik Revolution. They were legislated in a series of decrees that issued as early as 1918. The purpose of the Soviet no-fault divorce law was ideological. 
intended to revolutionize society at every level. Furtherly, interestingly, the Soviet 1968 laws on no-fault divorces were heavily influential on California's 1969 no-fault divorce laws, using much similarity in terminology, substance, and procedure. Now, there's been an attack on marriage that goes much, much deeper and much, much broader than what we face today. And we need to not pick and choose our battles. If we're going to be pro-marriage, let us be pro-marriage in all of its aspects, and not just the ones we find convenient. It's so easy to point our finger at sins we don't struggle with. It's so easy to condemn behavior we don't wrestle with. And we need to make sure that we are pro-marriage in all of its beauty and all of its fullness and not simply those aspects that it doesn't cost me, a heterosexual, hardly anything to be anti-gay marriage, right? It does cost me a lot to insist marriage is lifelong. No matter how bad my marriage gets, no matter how hard it gets, I'm in there for good. That, that, that's more costly. It's a lifelong covenant faithfulness. Third, cleaving Leave, cleave, weave, becoming one flesh. Divinely enacted oneness. Now, this is the amazing thing. According to Malachi, according to Jesus, the, the state of being one flesh does not reference the, the marriage act or union, but rather it references an inscrutable and, let's face it, mysterious act of God. Back to Malachi 2. Verse 15, did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And you say, what on earth does that mean? I'm not entirely sure. It means God did something in marriage. For everyone here who is married, you made vows and God did something. God did a joining. You go to Matthew 19 where Jesus, again, being questioned about divorce, his reason why he is not a fan of divorce what God has joined together, let no man separate. You get that? Jesus is zooming in on an inscrutable act of God of union. Yes, they made a covenant. And yes, Malachi is, is anti-divorce because of covenant breaking. Jesus, that's not what's on his radar. He is looking at when you got married, God did something. He did something wonderful. He made you one. How dare you? How dare you? Blaspheme that. How dare you treat that lightly? That, that's what Jesus is saying. Divinely enacted oneness. This oneness is, is hard to, to wrap your heads around, but some of the implications, according to 1 Peter 3, 7, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. One of the consequences of my oneness with my wife is if I'm not loving her and treating her right, God doesn't want to hear from me. Because he's viewing us in some senses as one. Hey, Jeremy, I'm not interested in your prayer life if you're not loving your wife. That's what, that's what 1 Peter 3, 7 says. Leave, cleave, and weave. The, the, the marriage act pictures that oneness, but it doesn't create or establish that oneness. It's an act of God. Three more points, and we'll be done. It is marriage, the authentic pattern, then is also, point B, between one man and one woman. And this is, of course, the, the point that our culture is most hotly debating today. And, and it's, it's inescapable in Genesis 2 
this nature, this notion of a correspondence. Adam sees that there is no corresponding creature in creation for him. There's not found a helper for him, someone who corresponded to what he needed. This isn't simply about what pleases me. This isn't simply an issue about what I like and what I want. This is an issue of, of what has God created that corresponds to me. That's the basis of Paul's rejection of homosexuality in Romans chapter 1. Is, it's unnatural, meaning in its most literal sense, natural. These, these things don't fit together appropriately. They don't correspond to each other. If one of the purposes of marriage is to produce godly offspring, it's, it's clear that, that such unions cannot possibly create offspring. There's, there's, they don't correspond. And again, if, however, we view marriage as something that exists for us and our joy and what it does to me, then all those arguments become immaterial. Because all that matters is whether you're happy, whether you're in love, whether you feel fulfilled, which is why you've got to start from the other end. This is something God made, and it's to serve his purpose, and it's to model his gospel. And then you can start to understand that there needs to be a, a corresponding nature between, between the man and the woman that, that can serve these things. They don't correspond. Paul in the New Testament elsewhere is clear that, that homosexuality, along with a list of other sins, we want to be clear here. The Bible speaks clearly. The New Testament speaks clearly about homosexuality, but it does not, that I can see in the passage we're going to look at, single it out as, as somehow far greater than other things. It puts it in with a laundry list of sin. Listen to 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11. We want to avoid, on the one hand, saying, well, because it's culturally costly to disagree with this, we can just sort of say nothing. On the other hand, we don't want to make it sound like this is the one unforgivable sin. Listen to 1 Corinthians 6, 7, I mean, verses 6 to 9. Um, no, 6, sorry. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11. Do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. Do you see how that fits right in there with other things we, we, you and I struggle with? It's right there along with adultery, fornication, homosexuality, drunkenness, um, revelers, swindlers. So, so if you struggle with one of those things on the list, you've got no reason to feel better than somebody who struggles with the other thing on the list. But we need to recognize the list is all bad things. The list is a list of things that if they define you, if they characterize you, don't think you're going to heaven. Verse 9, do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither, and then he makes his list. And then verse 11, and such were some of you, but you were washed. No, the New Testament is clear. Um, these are not compatible concepts of being a faithful follower of Christ and being an active, self-identified homosexual any more than I'm an active, self-identified thief. I'm an active, self-identified adulterer. I'm an active, self-identified idolater. It, it just doesn't work. And of course, the danger is making this the one thing that we want to speak about. We've got to make sure we're dealing with our own house as well. Um... And yet we do need to take a stand culturally that, no, this, this, isn't, this isn't compatible with marriage. But point C, just as the, there's physical complementariness going on, the man and the woman corresponding to one another, 
they also, for it to be in the authentic pattern of marriage, need to be embracing their complementary roles. We're, we're, we're flesh, spirit beings. We are whole people. And in marriage, there's a physical correspondingness, but there's also a, a relational correspondingness. And again, these, these are the things that can be costly for us. It can be so easy to bang the drum about you know, the issue of gay marriage, which is an important issue, but we need to also be banging the drum and, and, and being aware and fighting for men leading in their homes, serving their wives. Go, go back to Ephesians, Ephesians 5. In other words, it is hypocritical of us to insist that there needs to be a physical complementariness in marriage, and yet not also insist there needs to be relational complementarianism as well. The reason why you can't interchange these things is because there are roles to be assumed. And Paul will say things that to our modern ears will sound shocking, and he's plain and he's simple, and we're just going to read it. If you don't like it, you can take it up with Paul. Ephesians 5, starting in verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So there's the complementary roles that are to be undertaken. The danger is we can insist, hey, you can't mess with the physical correspondence, but this, this, this relational correspondence, that's not as important. And we're hypocrites. God has made marriage, and there are roles. And, and we, we strip up over wives submitting, and other passages obeying, honoring their husbands. But if you really unpack verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. What exactly is that speaking of? Pretty sure that's speaking of the crucifixion. Husbands, love your wives and be willing to be crucified. Serve her so that you can wash her with the water of the word. So that you might present her without spot or wrinkle in splendor. That, that, that's God's pattern for marriage. Is husbands who, who are willing to lead, and he's given them authority to lead, and they use that authority to get down on their hands and knees with the basin of water and the word, and they're just spending their time, how can I make my wife more like Jesus Christ? How can I lead my wife more like Jesus Christ? How can I encourage your faith at cost to myself? I don't get to watch as many games as I want to watch. I don't get to hang out with my friends as much. That's fine. It's easier than being crucified. My focus is what can I do to serve her? And she's saying, I'm, I'm into this type of leadership, and I, I, I want to follow my husband's lead, and even if I disagree with him, I'm going to honor him, I'm going to obey him, I'm going to listen to him. That synergy, that relationship is what's going to picture the gospel and the picture of the relationship of Jesus Christ to the church. It's just really hard because it involves everyone doing things that don't come naturally and dying to self. But it is completely illegitimate of us 
to fight for one aspect of marriage and be silent on the other. We need to be the pro-marriage people in all of its glory, in all of its fullness, including the harder aspects that are far more costly to ourselves, embracing their complementary roles. And finally, point D. There's so much more we could say in every one of these points. What's the last point of the authentic pattern? Is sooner than later. Sooner than later. You've, you've probably already picked up on these references, the wife of your youth, the wife of your youth, the children of your youth in, in Psalm 127. But we live in a day and an age where marriage is getting pushed off further and further and further. Let me just read to you. I just jumped online. You can check these stats out with, with, um, with resources online. But in 1960, the average age for a first marriage for a man was 22 years old and for a woman, 20. In 1990, that got raised to 26 for men and 23 for women. As recently as 2013, and this is all in the United States, average first marriage for a man, 29 years old. For a woman, 26. In Iowa, I'm happy to report we're doing a little better, 27 for first male marriage, 26 for female. And that's, that's a problem. Because God designed us, designed our bodies to be ready for marriage sometime in our teens, right? And we know just from scouring over history that Mary was probably 14, 15 years old when she bore Jesus. And we know that our late marriages are historically unique, to say the least. We've now actually reached a state in our country where the average age for first marriage is higher than the average age for first child. Because our culture is just redefining marriage. We've got marriage without kids, kids without marriage, sex without marriage, and, and vice versa. Every permutation we can get as we're trying to twist it and form it into something that exists for us. By age 25, 44% of women have had a baby, while only 38% have been married. Now, I'm not suggesting that we should send our teenagers out to get married. You're not, you shouldn't get married until you're a man, until you're a woman. The difference is we were, in previous generations, rearing and raising our children to be men and women much younger. We live in a world that has created the kidult, the adult essence, the 30-year-old guy playing Xbox in his parents' basement who shouldn't marry anybody. Don't, 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 don't misunderstand me. Don't, don't misunderstand me. But we've lost a vision for this. We've lost a vision for this. But here's the problem with that. One of the reasons why I'm a more faithful servant of Jesus Christ as a married man is I now have an, a legitimate and biblical outlet for, for my sexual... I've, I've got a much greater defense in my battle for purity, for continence. And what we've got is a scenario where people are living in their peak, peak passion their peak physical preparation. And we're telling them, just hang there and do laps for a decade or more. I wonder what type of fruit that's going to bear. It's not going to be good. We've got people ready physically for marriage, hitting puberty in their, in their mid to late teens. And then, according to the culture, they're going to wait a decade or more. True love waits, but I'm telling you, most people in that type of frame aren't going to. There's a reason why the rate for a first child is lower than the first marriage. And yet Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, by a concession, 
not as a command. I say this, I wish all were as myself, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and widows, I say it's good for them to remain single as I am, but if they are not exercising self-control, they should marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. So, so Paul is saying, and this isn't the only reason to get married, but a biblical reason to get married is I'm struggling here, and I want to be faithful to God. Clearly, I don't have the gift of celibacy, so I guess God has ordained that I'm going to glorify him as a husband. And so I need to get ready preparing for that sooner than later so that I don't spend the next 10 years with this burning fire in my belly with nowhere to go with it which is another image the Proverbs use of of taking hot coals and trying to hold them in the middle of your shirt. You're going to get burned. You're going to get burned. Our culture, and here's one other quote. The culture, culturally, marriage has moved from the cornerstone to the capstone. Marriage has moved from the cornerstone to the capstone. Young adults have increasingly come to see marriage as a capstone rather than cornerstone. That is, something they do after they've gotten all their other ducks in a row, rather than as the foundation for launching into adulthood and parenthood. You see, read the Bible, and one of the interesting things, and Al Mohler argues this better than I will, but the Bible assumes the default, the default position for adult is married. You go back to Genesis Two, in Moses' statement, for this reason, a man will leave his mother and father and go be joined to his wife. Now, you ask people that today. What is the reason a young person leaves their mother and father's home? You'll get something like this. Well, to go to college. Well, because they're 18 and they got their first job. and To go live with their roommates. The Bible's, that notion of this three stages of life, you live with your parents, and then you go out and you live on your own with some roommates, you do your thing, and then you get married, that is foreign to the Bible. It's not to say it's sinful, but if we're looking at the pattern, what's the authentic pattern for marriage? It's a whole lot younger than, than our culture is thinking. You know, we, we run the danger of viewing a help meet as a hurt meet. Oh, I don't want to get married while I'm still going through school. That'd be hard. Oh, I don't want to get married until I, you know, get the first year or two of my new job under my belt. That would slow me down. And I've literally had to come up alongside of some guys. Um, I even ran into this a fair bit in seminary. Get these guys who they've been called to preach, they've been called to ministry. And you sort of ask them, so what's your thoughts on marriage? And it's kind of like, well, I had one guy literally look at me and tell me, she might disqualify, I'm afraid to get married. My wife might disqualify me from ministry. And I said, sir, I I'm, I'm kind of concerned you might be already if that's your view of marriage. You're describing what God calls a helpmeet as a hurt. You're afraid that this, this person that God wants to bring you to be a more faithful servant, to, to, to enable you to be a better servant is going to hurt you? That's, but that's what our culture looks at it as. Instead of, I want to go into these things as fully equipped and as fully prepared as possible, we, we, we tend to view it as the capstone. No, first let me figure everything else out, and then... And then, if, if I feel like it, I'll get married. Anyway, this is the briefest of brief overviews on marriage. But, but I hope you see now how much more grandeur it has than our culture believes. But also, from how many different angles it has come under attack. From how many different ways we are redefining and reshaping and, and twisting marriage into something that can, 
It's convenient for us and serves our purposes. And yes, yes, we, we, cannot, we cannot capitulate on the issue of gay marriage, but, but we need to make sure we are pro-marriage in all of its fullness, in all of its beauty. We've got to hold tightly to the entire authentic pattern and not just the convenient pieces. The glory of God is at stake, our good is at stake, and ultimately our ability to image the gospel of Jesus Christ to the watching world is at stake. Let's close in prayer. Lord God, just thank you for your word. I thank you for marriage. I thank you for my wife. I thank you for um, giving this good gift to us. And I just pray, Lord, that we would rightly understand it, why you have given it to us, and what you want it to be. For those here who are married, Lord, I pray that you would encourage them to embrace and not resist the roles that you have ordained and called for them, that the men here would become self-sacrificing, servant leaders, more concerned about their wife's spiritual growth than they are about their fantasy football team, Lord. I pray that wives would, would honor and submit to their husbands, trusting in you. Lord, I pray that we would be a people known to celebrate, to, to glory in, and to delight and prize ourselves in marriage for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. You are dismissed.